So what's the longest amount of time that you have spent away from home? Maybe it was a couple of weeks. Maybe it was a few months. Maybe it was even a couple of years. Uh, what's the longest amount of time that you've spent away from home? So for me, right after I graduated college, uh, I took this three-month backpacking trip across the, around the world uh, with some friends. It was the adventure of a lifetime. And I have been trying my hardest the last three years as pastor of Restoration not to use this as a sermon illustration because I can talk forever about this trip and I just absolutely loved it. You know how you have these stories in your mind of when you meet someone and you're just like looking for the opportunity to bring up this story, you know? Like we all have those kinds of things and for me it's, it's this trip, you know, I love talking about it. So anyway, it was super, super fun. For the first two months, and I'm not going to talk forever about it, I promise. For the first two months, uh, we, we backpacked throughout Asia, and then the third month was in Europe. And I absolutely loved meeting new people, so many different people who grew up in lifestyles that were absolutely different from mine. Their, their way of thinking, their way of talking was very different than mine. And so it's just so fun to compare customs and, and ideas about the world, uh, to compare food, to see different architecture, different landscapes that are around the world. It was absolutely exciting. But towards the end of this trip, I had a huge hunger for home. I missed my family a lot. And I also missed Hamburgers, uh, like real hamburgers, not fake yak burgers. Like I love uh, American food. And, and I also miss this, this really cute friend that I had. Her name was Molly. I, I missed her tremendously on this trip. I, I learned on that trip how much I really missed Molly. Uh, there were a lot of things that I was just absolutely um, excited to see again. Well, there was one night in particular that I got very lost. Uh, it was in Italy. It was in Venice. And if you've ever been to Venice, you know that that city is easy to get lost in. It's not a gridlock. It's, it's built on like old um, rivers and, and canals. And, and it's just, it's no offense to the Italians, it's a mess. Uh, and it smells kind of weird. At least it did then too. So anyway, this was in 2005. So it was before the invention of the iPhone. So it's not like I could just pull out my phone and be like, beep, you know, and find my way back to the hotel. Like, that was not an option. And so what I did is I had this map, which I couldn't read, and I just wandered around the city for hours. And I, it was so late. And at one point, I even found this, this payphone, and I called my mom collect. And I was like, Mom, I'm in the middle of Venice. I can't find my way home. And I remember just being in tears, like talking to my mom from this payphone in the middle of nowhere, just absolutely lost. It was so pathetic. It was so sad. You know, just telling my mom, like, I'm so ready to come home. I was also really hungry for the church. I just, I missed being with the worshiping people of God. I missed hearing the, the songs that encouraged my soul. I, I missed hearing the, the scriptures publicly read. And I especially missed the sacrament. I missed coming to the table and being nourished by the presence of Jesus Christ himself. I missed that tremendously. And in Asia, it was really hard for us to find churches. In, in Europe, they're a bit more prevalent. Uh, and so there was one day uh, where this French Catholic friend who I had made um, in Assisi, and, and again, I can talk forever about how beautiful Assisi is, and he invited me to go to uh, a mass service with him, and it was beautiful. I loved it. It was actually the same place that St. Francis built his church. It was so cool to actually be at a service there in this beautiful, beautiful place, 
And I was hungry. I was hungry for the sacrament. I wanted to participate. And if you're familiar with the Catholic tradition, you, you know that usually you, you can't partake in communion unless you yourself are Catholic or, or you kind of cheat and you don't tell anybody, you know, but we can talk about that later. And so I remember sitting there next to my Catholic friend and as they were dismissing the rose to go forward, I chose just to remain seated because I, I didn't want to offend this friend and, and I didn't want to just compromise the, the integrity of the service, you know, so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to stay seated, no big deal. And I could tell that my friend, he was bothered by this, and he leaned over to me, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, aren't you coming forward? And I was like, no, no, I can't, I explained why, and he said, are you hungry? And that just cut me to the core. Like all of the longing that I, that I had been feeling that entire summer, the, the missing home, the missing family, missing, missing my spiritual community, all of that just kind of in a split second just exploded in my heart. You know, I missed the presence of God and, and all of the, the comforts and the joys that come with that. And so I said, yeah, of course I'm hungry. And so he didn't even say a word. He just kind of motioned with his hand uh, for me to go and, and follow him. And, and I felt permission then to go and receive from the church. It was a wonderful, beautiful moment. So we are now in the season of Lent. Here we are. It, it started in this room at Ash Wednesday a few nights ago, and this is the first Sunday of Lent. And I can't speak for all of you. I, I can't speak for all of you who are watching us on the live stream as well. But, but I do know that for a lot of us at Restoration, we get like really strange giddy around the season of Lent. And it's, it's kind of strange, like no offense, but it's weird that we get really happy and excited for Lent. There's a couple of you who will go out of your way to tell me every year, like, hey, pastor, just so you know, I love Lent. It's my favorite season of the year. And I'm like, that's kind of weird because it's, it's a season of penitence. It's a season of fasting. It's not necessarily a happy season. It's a season in which we continually turn to one another and we turn and, and ask our own selves, are you hungry? It's a question that we're obsessed with throughout the season of Lent. Are you hungry? What do you desire? What do you long for? What's home for you? Where do you, where do you place your, your desires and your greatest securities? What is home for you? You know, this season, like I said, we get giddy for it, and it's, it's strange to do so. It, it begins by us literally smearing dirt on each other's heads, saying, you came from the dust, and you're going to die. You know, that's one of the things that we do. And also on, on Sundays, what we do is we take the most uncomfortable part of our liturgy, the confession, and we bring it to the front of the service and we make it really long, you know? Like these are just funny things that we do. Our songs are more solemn. The room itself feels a little bit darker. And if you say the word, hallelujah, you're told to go home and you can't come back until Easter. It's terrible. <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing because that's a joke. That's for those of you who are new. We, we forgive mistakes once, yeah, once, one time. So Lent is a time in which we prepare. We prepare for the great, magnificent, beautiful feast of resurrection on Easter morning. And just as a word of preview, I am so excited for this year's Feast of the Resurrection. It is going to be truly great. It's going to be unlike any other Easter that we've ever celebrated. You know, I used to think that Easter was just one day long. Do you know that it's actually 50 days? 
It begins on that Saturday night before Easter at the great Easter vigil, which we'll be celebrating here in this room again. And it spans for 50 days all the way up until Pentecost, which means 50, Pentecost. It's a wonderful time. And so even now, I want you all to be thinking, what are some clever ways that, that me and my household can be fasting or uh, feasting throughout Easter? But we're not there yet. Now we're in Lent, the season of preparation. We're preparing for the feast. We're not there yet. So how exactly do you prepare for a feast? Well, you prepare for a feast by fasting, by planning, by making sure you have all of your ducks in a row, right? And like I said, we ask a lot of questions about the heart. Where do your affections lie? What does your heart long for? What does your soul desire? What do you truly love? How hungry are you for God? Now, the first Sunday in Lent is always the same reading uh, from different Gospels. This year, it's, well, it's, it's the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And, and this year, we're looking at it through the lens of the evangelist Mark. And this is a story about these kinds of themes that I've been s- discussing. It's, it's a story about preparation. It's a story about appetite, about hunger, about longing, about temptation. And so I'd like for us to look at, Ma- at Mark's gospel here along, and let us walk and let us descend with Jesus into the wilderness. Now, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness happens immediately after his baptism, and that's highly significant. After, or as Jesus is, is rising from the baptismal waters, the heavens are torn open, just like the, Isaiah, or just like the prophet Isaiah foretold. And the Spirit pours out from heaven and, and anoints Jesus. And then we hear the voice of the Father spoken over him, This is my beloved Son. You are mine. And from here, after his baptism... Mark tells us that it's immediately after this moment in which that spirit that just newly anointed Jesus immediately drives him out into the wilderness. And Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. For 40 days, Noah and his family and God's creatures drifted in the ark, bobbing up and down on this ocean, this global ocean of God's judgment. For 40 years, the Jewish people wandered throughout the wilderness, hoping for home, eating heavenly bread, but still grumbling and chasing after idols. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days, receiving instructions from God on how to establish law among this infantile nation. The prophet Elijah, he had his 40 days in the wilderness too, a time filled with confusion and and testing. You see, in the Bible, the number 40, it's more than just testing. It's more than that. The sea, or seasons that are marked by the number 40 remind us that we, are in fra- that we are fragile and that we are in need of God's leading. We're in need of God's hand to be present in our lives, to take hold of us sometimes and to help us when we get lost. 40 represents the sufferings, the trials, and the hunger of the human experience. Well, for you, it, it, may, it might not be 40 literal days, but I would wager that every single person in this room has experienced a season of 40. Maybe it's 40 days of saying goodbye to a loved one. Maybe it's 40 weeks of enduring chemotherapy. Maybe it's 40 months of trying to conceive a child. 
Maybe you're in the middle of your season of 40 right now. Well, my point is this. This year, maybe this Lent isn't so much about us entering into Jesus's wilderness experience, but maybe this year, this Lent, is about you realizing that Jesus enters into your wilderness experience, that he enters into your season of 40, that he walks with you, he experiences the same hungers that you're wrestling with, the same pains, the betrayals. He experiences that right alongside you. There's this really curious phrase that's tucked within this passage. Scholars debate what it means. Uh, No one quite knows for sure. But here in Mark's version of the temptation, we're told that Jesus was with the wild animals. Matthew and Luke, they don't say that phrase. And wild animals, that's not a phrase that really pops up in the Old Testament. So it's not like Mark is necessarily quoting something familiar. But what we do know is that Mark is writing this gospel story to the community of believers in Rome. And many of these believers in the Roman church, they were being severely persecuted. Many of whom were former pagans themselves and who had been wrapped up in just heinous, bizarre temple practices. And after converting to Christianity, some of these believers were then betrayed by their family members. They were seen as outcasts. They were seen as, as betraying the entire Roman Empire. And so we ought to turn them in. And so the family members would do that. They were reported to the Roman authorities. They were condemned to death. And some of these believers were even, were even taken into the Roman Colosseum. And before massive crowds, they were thrown before the wild animals. Can you imagine that? Like what a humiliating an absolutely painful way to die. And then for the rest of the community, knowing that your brother or your sister was killed in this way would never leave your memory. And so we read here in Mark's gospel, Jesus is with the wild animals. Jesus knows the physical pain of your community. He knows what it's like to to be hungry, to desire wholeness. He knows what it's like to be facing the the eyes of these beady eyes of animals that want to eat you and, and devour you. He knows the relational hunger. He knows what it's like to be isolated from friends and family. He knows the mockery and the betrayal and the loneliness and the hunger pains of, of your soul that accompanies those moments. So the first thing I want us to take away from this passage is that Jesus knows your hunger. He knows your hunger. Well, next we're also told in this passage that Jesus is tempted by Satan. Now, some scholars who think that they're very smart in commenting on this passage will say that the presence of the devil is merely allegorical, uh, that he's just an um, imaginary sort of metaphorical figure in this story, that Jesus didn't actually see Satan, because that would be crazy, Right? And, you know, so it's, it's just simply a, a metaphorical presence. Well, how sophisticated, right? Like, how enlightened of you to be able to say that? Because as we turn through the pages of the Bible, from the beginning to the end, the Bible is emphatic about the real, personal, prevalent, and powerful presence of evil. All throughout the pages, you'll see it. So I've shared this story with you um, before, but I, I really like it, and I, th- I think it brings home the point here. 
But several years ago, a lot of the Anglican churches uh, here in America were under the headship of Rwandan bishops. And it was a really sweet season because these Rwandan bishops would come over and they would preach at our churches. They would talk to us. They would um, share stories about what faith was like on their side of the globe. And I remember in one, uh, one moment in particular in seminary, uh, our church was visited by Bishop John Rushahana of Rwanda. And after the church service, uh, our, our priest arranged a time for him to sit down with the seminarians. Uh, so it was really cool, just a small, intimate gathering um, after the church service. And I remember one of my buddies, um, John, he asked Bishop Rushahana, he said, what's, what's something that you've found to be different here in the American church as opposed to the Rwandan church? You know, great question. Well, Bishop John leaned forward and he said, you Americans have no idea what evil is. Like, that's a chilling thing to be told by an African bishop. You have no idea what evil is. You see, back in the 90s, Rwanda had experienced a massive genocide. Over the course of 100 days, one million people were slaughtered, were killed. And very tragically, it was oftentimes the church who were causing this to happen. Pastors would lure Tutsis into the church buildings and burn them down. Absolutely evil, completely heinous. The Rwandan genocide saw six times the death rate as the Nazi exterminations. And so when the bishop gently said that to us, he was reminding us that we Americans really haven't wrestled with the presence of evil in ways that his people have. So if your assessment is to, when you look and you see things evil of, of this level and, and your, your stance is to simply say Satan is a metaphor, if your worldview doesn't see Satan as a personal reality, then quite honestly, I don't think you're paying attention to what's going on in the world. I don't think you're taking life seriously enough. Your worldview isn't seeing the fact that evil is a powerful and personal pref- or presence. The Bible says that evil prowls around like a scavenger, seeking to devour those who are already broken and weak. You see, the devil, he sees your hunger. Jesus sees your hunger, and he wants to be with you. He wants to comfort you. The devil sees your hunger. He sees your hunger, your desires for peace, your desires for personal wholeness, your desires for victory over sin, and he pounces on you. Satan amplifies and magnifies and exacerbates our hunger. Just look at this past year that we've had, right? Like, look, we've, we've experienced this global pandemic that's crippled our own nation. It's embarrassed us. And what do you think the devil does? Does he kind of sit back and say, oh, wow, that's really intense, even for me. Like, I better let up a little bit. Of course not. No. Racial tensions have nearly torn us apart. Godless mobs have torn through our own neighborhoods in this own city. Political tensions have shaken us up quite a bit. So I don't know how anyone can look at this compounded suffering that we've experienced and not contribute it to any sort of systematic and calculated assault of the evil one. Satan sees us hungering and reaching for bread, and he kicks the plate across the room. There's no mercy with him. And we see that even here in this passage, tempting Jesus as he is hungering in the wilderness. 
So we see in this story, oh, there's, there's another unique thing, I think, about the way in which Mark tells the story as opposed to the other gospel writers. In the others, we see that Jesus and Satan have this dialogue, right? You'll be very familiar with the three temptations that Satan throws to Jesus. But here in the, oh, and, and then that culminates with this sort of triumphant victory of Jesus. And then Satan leaves Jesus until an opportune time. That's what we read in Luke and, in Mark, or in, in Luke and Matthew. But here in Mark's gospel, it's a little more open-ended, isn't it? It's like the presence of Satan continues to linger. There is no obvious victory in this story. I mean, you can read it again right now. It's only two verses. Instead, for those, or as, as you flip through the pages of Mark, we see that Satan continues to harass Jesus. Satan continues to harass the disciples. Satan continues to harass the people of God. In fact, over Epiphany, we looked at some of those stories of evil spirits harassing the people of God, sometimes even as they assemble for worship. So how does Jesus press on in the midst of this ongoing persecution? Well, two things. One, I'm sure that he remembers what just immediately happened. He roots himself in his own baptism. He reminds himself of that experience of being filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit, of hearing the affirming voice of the Father. And see, brothers and sisters, we have that same experience as well. You and I, in baptism, have been united in the sufferings and the victories of Jesus Christ. We ourselves have heard the voice of the Father speaking over us, Son, daughter, you are my beloved. You belong to me. The same spirit that emboldened Jesus is in you. This is one of the reasons why sometimes you'll see believers crossing themselves. That's not like a good luck charm or or something wacky like that. That's just a, a way of praying with our bodies. It's a way of saying, I belong to the Lord. I have been marked with the cross of Christ. I am under his authority, under his care. But then the second thing I think that we see in this passage and the way in which Jesus endured these persecutions is he's ministered to by the angels. Oh, I just love this. We as Protestants don't talk about angels too much, do we? But I love that the, this passage be, ends with, by saying the angels were ministering to Jesus. The angels were no doubt reminding Jesus of the Father's word, but probably also reminding Jesus of his mission. Like, you're the son of God. Don't forget what's at the end of this. Don't forget the reward that sits before you. Yes, it's going to be painful. Yes, it's going to be hard. But you're about to conquer all of these evil spirits once and for all at Calvary. You will eventually secure salvation for all those who have the gift of faith. So in our own communion liturgy here at the table, we say that our voices are joined with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven who forever proclaim hymns of glory to glorify the Father's name. And you might not feel it. You might not always be aware of it. But when we are together, I believe that we are being ministered to by the holy angels. You know, before we've thought about this as maybe filling up that gymnasium that we were at in the community center. But now there's a lot of empty seats. We have to spread out a lot. So What if they're being filled with angels who are encouraging us, who are ministering to us? And for those of you at home, like participating with us spiritually, I I, I wonder, maybe you're not alone. Maybe you yourselves are surrounded by the ministering angels sent from God himself. 
asking us, are you hungry? Do you long for God? Do you want to be nourished by him? Because, brothers and sisters, here's the good news. We can all receive from him. We can all be nourished by the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who went before us and, and, and who succeeded where we ourselves fail and fail and fail. He's the one who has victory. And he's the one who invites us to the table to hold out our hands open so that when we're hungry, we can come and we can be fed. All you have to do is hold, hold open your hands. So brothers and sisters, come. Come and be fed by the one who endured the sufferings of the world. Feast with the lamb who was slain, who now stands at the table waiting to nourish you with his very presence. Are you hungry? Then come and be fed. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, we ourselves are hungry. This world leaves us hungry, and we're undergoing many assaults by the evil one, many temptations, and they cause us to hunger after you and you alone. So Lord, set our affections upon you. May we taste and see your goodness, Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.